Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how and what we write. My guest today is Vinay Patel. Vinay, welcome to the show. Hello. So first of all, for listeners who may not be familiar with your work, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, I am primarily a playwright, or at least I started off as a playwright mostly. Um, I've moved into television in the last few years. Um, and at the moment I write uh, yeah, a mix of plays, films, telly, short stories, and uh, a bit of radio. I think like the only thing I haven't written is uh, novels, but I'm, you know, just time. Yeah, you'll get there. <laughs> You're still <laughs> yeah. I hear, I hear, I hear it's good. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of work. Yeah. Um. So, well, let's go, let's go back then to you know when you were young. Uh, how did you get into stories, and what made you think, oh, I want to do this, and I want to be a writer? I, in some ways, like very much that cliche kid who sort of liked writing short stories at the kitchen table and. Um, it was the most exciting thing for me, I think, uh, at a young age. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the things that really excited me, like I grew up in a, a suburb of London um, called Bexley, and it was uh, a strange place in many ways. Uh, I didn't feel very closely connected to culture. And uh, my family, bless them, uh, very nice in lots of ways, but, like, again, not the most culturally engaged. So it felt like something I was doing very much um, by myself and for myself. Um, I had one, like one grandparent who's like uh, quite supportive of those things. Uh, but apart from that, um, it wasn't really there. So for me, it was like something very special for myself. I loved reading loads and loads and loads. Um, I mostly came to love science fiction through watching Star Trek on the end of my dad's bed. um every day and like that that felt really exciting i i think i was really obsessed with the ideas of um stories of escape and then um i grew up at a time when i think we got the internet relatively early for for um for england i think it was like 96 97 and so like i was ended up being like a like a 12 year old nerd posting like really terrible derivative sci-fi stories on internet forums, like on CompuServe forums and stuff. And oh, excellent. I used to do that yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, it felt like it's, it's weird, isn't it? Cause like, I don't know if you, if you felt this, but it felt like a very benign place or maybe I was just quite naive <laughs> being quite young, but I was like, Oh yeah. It, it, Cause it was always like really positive. Like people really liked engaging with that stuff. And no, in the mid nineties, it was, it was only later that the internet got terrible. Right. Yes. That's what I want. I want to be an internet hipster in terms of like uh, <laughs> CompuServe forums. It's really, um, sorry, very slight digression, but I, I just finished watching uh halt and catch fire, which I, I don't know if you know of. I do. Yeah. Yeah. And like, there's a bit where they mentioned CompuServe. I was like, ah, oh, yes. Now this is, this is, this is the era that I probably <laughs> now recognize. My speed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was like a really formative part of, um, the way that writing went from being a solitary activity to one that became a social activity. And, um, I, you know, and I sort of took that into my real life. Like I'd go into school and I got to a point where I would put, I would, people would pay me to write stories about them and their mates, like tiny oh, wow. bits of like, yeah, like a, like a quid or something like that. Like something like you could spend it like, a corner shop or something like it wasn't a lot of money, but it was just like people were really excited about 
again, like a, it wasn't a super creative place. I think people were just really excited about the idea of the way that fiction can, you know, valorize you to a certain extent and celebrate you. And I, like, it's something I think about, I'm sure we'll talk about later about the way, the reason you create narratives and, mm. um, and why you want to put them into the world. But yeah, at that point it was just like, Hey, I'm going to write the story with you and that person who you really fancy <laughs> or like you're like the pilot on this spaceship. And isn't that really cool? And, um, so, and it felt really, I found that really energizing the idea that you can create work that was meaningful to people like very directly in that sense. Um, and I think that's something that's probably stuck with me in everything that I've written since. I think it's a really, it's, it's gone from being a sort of a fantasist escapist thing to me from me asking myself, um, who am I doing it for? And like, who, who, who really needs this story? And, um, yeah, and I, I, sorry, that's a bit rambly, but yeah, that's a, that's the way you're going to it. Sorry. If you hear some random meowing, my cat has this, he always joins whenever <laughs> there's like a sociable thing happening. Never apologize for pain. <laughs> yeah, cool. Never apologize for rambling yeah. either. I mean, that's half of what the show is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I hope, I hope that, um, yeah. So. Well, so that brings up an interesting question then, because, yeah, as you said, you started out and to an extent you are still best known as, you know, when you say your name, people think, oh, the playwright. Yeah. And yet you started out loving SF, which is not really a genre well represented in contemporary theatre. No, it's not. And, and, and you know, it's hard because theatre is a second, very much a second love. Um, and, and it feels weird to other people I talk to because for them they the idea of london they think oh that's like a very theatery place you know especially if you talk to people from abroad um their idea of um what theater means is so centered in london which is not a good thing for lots of reasons and hopefully pushing back against that generally but um yeah like you know i i, I was that person like reading like you know x-wing tie novels <laughs> as, as a kid and and the, the leap from there to the stage feels like a <laughs> a gulf that like didn't reconcile itself until like relatively recent, like I'm writing um, at the moment, I'm writing an adaptation of Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard that's set on a generation ship. Oh, cool. And yeah. And it really works actually. Like it makes a lot of sense. Like, um, like the thing I always say to people at the moment is that the pandemic has made a lot of sense of Chekhov because it like, even if you have like a cursory knowledge of Chekhov, it's like, I always find it quite difficult to emotionally engage with it. Cause I'd be like, Oh, it's, so a load of people stuck somewhere and they're trying to go somewhere and they can't get to and are profoundly bored all the time. Like I can't connect with any of that. I was like, Oh, I can now. <laughs> that, that all makes total sense to me. But, um, there was something, it was like, it started off as a, started off as a sort of joke idea, but then actually I was going, ah, here's the way I'm going to be able to earn the right to make a sci-fi play <laughs> basically is by tying it to a classic. But, I, but, but yeah, I think it is really underrepresented. I think, I think there are lots of reasons for it. I think people can feel like it's quite difficult to make not feel silly on a stage, especially if you don't have a lot of money. Um, it is funny though, like sometimes when theatre does venture into it, like people go, oh my God, that was amazing. I was like, like films and books have been doing that story yeah. like way better than that, like for, for decades. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, you know, any engagement with it, I'm really excited about, but it is, it is a weird thing to be like quite, to really love science fiction and then to see the way that it's treated as a sort of uh, novelty in this medium that I've come to really love. Um, but I, I think that is changing. And I think there was a, a beautiful adaptation of Solaris actually the other year. Oh, cool. Yeah. It was just very distinctly different from both 
um, the film, uh, the TV series and novel itself, like it was, yeah, very distinctly its own thing. And it worked beautifully as a piece of theater as well. And because it, it centered it around like, you know, the, the, the book is about that, that, um, that axis of feeling between that a man and uh, someone they've lost and, it really foregrounded that whilst having the money because it was like a relatively big stage. It was the the Lyric and Hammersmith. So they had some beautiful visuals as well. So you got to capture the sense of grandeur, which I think is the thing that um, draws a lot of people to sci-fi. Like the, I like the idea of the profound or the magic, but like, but something grounded in science and it, it managed to capture a bit of that. So I, I thought that was quite stunning and like, hopefully there'll be more of those to come. Yeah, I mean, you've got to have the character and emotion, regardless of how big the presentation or, you know, how great yeah. the, the special effects. It's all really essentially about, yeah, the character and uh, engaging with them. But I mean, uh, how how did you make that leap then, as you say, that across that gulf, you know, from yeah, uh, yeah loving sci-fi and probably wanting to be a sci-fi novelist or filmmaker and yeah, then going yeah. into theatre instead? Did that start at school? Oh, great. <laughs> school... Um... The first creative thing I did at school, I think I rewrote the matrix and I set it in my hometown. Um, <laughs> and like, I, uh, I, I, I thought, cause it was it, looking at it now. I'm like, Oh, actually that was a way I was trying to make something that felt so far from me, really accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like, you know, it was really silly. It was like replacing like the Sentinels with my friends on bikes and, uh, my friend was going to play Neo, but, and he had always insisted that Trinity was played by the person he was dating, but he kept breaking up with people and dating someone else. So it kept pushing, <laughs> it kept making it really difficult to shoot. Um, but it was like a real, yeah, it was a, it was a real thing about how do I make this thing that seems so far away from me feel really tangible. Um, so yeah, I didn't really do that was like, I think I was like 15 when I did that. Um, and I was interested in, Weirdly, the idea of becoming a director or doing something in film and telly felt more um, accessible than uh, the than theatre. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which now feels ridiculous. Like I, I, I but but like the truth of it was that's what it did feel like a thing I studied at school. And even at school, like there's a real the things that I studied. I didn't. I don't think I studied any contemporary British plays um, at GCSE or younger. Like I, it was like Shakespeare. Um, some Arthur Miller, which I really loved actually. Um, and then, um, you know, that's, and then I did some foreign language plays when I did the international baccalaureate, but mostly what the, you know, the theater scene in the UK was, it was really absent from it. So it took me a while to come to that. And I, you know, and I went through all the other routes. So when I was a kid, I did want to be a novelist because that's the thing that felt most tangible. And then it was like, aha, like sci-fi telly and film, brilliant. Like I loved being the kid who snuck in underage to watch first contact <laughs> with his pals. And, you know, that, that was the, the real exciting thing in my life. Um, but yeah, theater, theater was just, um, I didn't really start going to theater properly of my own self till I was in my early twenties. And even then, like that terrible thing of like, I think I'm just trying to impress people, probably someone I fancy. That's why I'm doing this rather than like for uh, legitimately artistic reasons. Um, but yeah, theater, I think, it it was something like I knew of kids who like did youth theater, but that was something my family was never going to let me do. So yeah, it just felt really intangible. Right. But you must have, you may have started out going to the theater to impress 
girls because yes I, I can relate to that but you must have fell in love with it to then start writing plays yeah yeah I and mean, actually i did actually i am i'm overselling it i did do theater arts at ib briefly but again that was a my way of doing a creative thing and i didn't really understand what we were doing <laughs> most of the time i and in fact i distinctly remember getting taken to see uh what was it it was Endgame, and it had uh, Michael Gumbin and Lee Evans in it. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and it was like, so now I'd be like, wow, what an amazing cast for an amazing play. Back then I was like, I don't get what's going on. Why is the woman in a bin? Why is everyone upset all the time? <laughs> uh, like, none of this speaks to, to where I am now. And I, actually, I think theatre itself has shifted a lot in that, in that time. Um, but, um, sorry, I completely blanked on what your well, question was. <laughs> well, I was asking about how you sort of got into you know what oh, right. was it about Sorry. the theater that drew you to write it but i was also going to say you yourself are one of the people who've helped push theater into you know being more relevant in modern times i think yeah i hope so yeah i mean and i, and I want to help more people come through and do that um because i think it is magic i think the place the, the reason theater came to be a central part of the things that i really loved is um my early i left uni in my early 20s i didn't really know what i was doing i ended up as a corporate filmmaker for a bit, like a corporate headshot um, photographer for a bit. Um, I was a technician at film school that had done a short course at for a while. And these were all like picking around the edges of um, film stuff in particular. Um, I was like a runner on a couple of things. And I was asking myself, like, what's the way, how do I get myself into this industry? I have no connections uh i'm trying to make sure my family doesn't think that i'm throwing away all the sacrifices <laughs> um, on a crazy artistic venture so i'm I'm trying to find the, the artsy way that also um has a possibility to have a, a, a possibility of living on and not just being doing lots of internships for free in that but what happened was i ended up um doing a master's at uh, central school of speech and drama and um that I couldn't, I couldn't really find a way to do it part time, really. So I ended up doing it full time, but like running away at lunch times to go film like um, interviews for a DVD or something and editing it at night. So it was like a really intense year. Oh, wow, yeah. But it was a year where I got to sort of unshackle myself from the idea of I've got to find a way to like make this work financially or like not be a ridiculous waste of again like family <laughs> family sacrifices, but um. That is there that I properly fell in love with theatre because there were people there who'd properly done theatre at uni, who really loved it. Whereas, like mostly my experience of theatre at uni was like those people all dickheads, um, which I they'll tell people I understand that's passion. That's what passion looks like is like really caring about a thing above being um, sometimes being the best person in the world. Mm. But what was so nice about Central was you could just write something probably quite terrible, and actually the one of the very first short things I wrote there was uh, like a sci-fi thing. Um, but then you just had some actors who were there as well, who were also training and looking to, you know, be the best version of themselves and the best artists they can. And you would just play together and yeah, do it for no money. Material. They need material. You do it for no money. You'd, and the idea of a scratch night, that's the first time I understood the idea of a scratch night, which um, I don't know if anyone listening will know what that is, but that is just where you go, Hey, you know, you might rehearse something for like half a day and then you throw it on. Not much. Um, you know, you're not expecting a extensive lighting setup or set or anything, but you're you're playing out a version of a of a short thing, and I that was like a very immediate way of making work. It was a good way to get good quick 
quickly. So, um, you know, my first year out, out after Central, I, I fly to like 12, I think I did, yeah, 12 scratch nights in a year. And it, each one of them, I pushed myself to do something new. So like I'm going, oh, all of this, this uh, short is going to run one scene for the whole 15 minutes. And this one is going to have like 50 scenes in 15 minutes. So this one is going to use the last line of each scene is going to mean something to the start of the next scene or, you know, this is going to be one uh, hander. This is going to be five people. Like I was, always, I was trying to find the edges of um, a craft and trying to push myself to to not be scared of things because that's the perfect environment to do it. It's also theatre is a good place to be broke with other people, <laughs> which if you're a writer is like kind of what you're going to be, especially like when you're just starting out. And it and it and it didn't feel like a place where that was. Um, Nobody was looking down on you for not being able to afford lunch. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like and you know I'm like. And I was doing like fine eventually, like I had a day job that I was part of. So it wasn't like I was super hard up or anything, but it was, uh, you know, everyone has a slash at that point, you know, you like, I'm a data entry person slash actor. And, and that felt like an exciting place to be. And it was very immediate. And then all of a sudden theater became really accessible and became really um, present. Whereas telly and film started to feel like very far away things. Yeah. So those scratch nights were, I mean, along with everything else, but putting, as you say, putting something on, writing something, no matter how quickly you do it, no matter how quickly you produce it and put it up there, putting something on, finishing it, seeing it performed is invaluable. You learn more doing that than you will from, you know, writing 20 little short plays that you never see produced. Oh, absolutely. So that must have been an absolutely invaluable education for you. Yeah. I mean, it's the thing people always say, like, you never know how bad or good your play is until you put it in front of an audience. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a terrifying thing to see your play in front of people, especially I think when you're starting out or again, uh, someone like me who didn't have a lot of exposure to theater younger, you write with a very idealized version of what you think that scene is going to be like. You see exactly how the actors are going to say it. And when they're not doing that, you're like, no, no, my subtlety, my subtext, how dare you? And, um, and, and what was great about that process over that year and, you know, and then like the years after it, when I was putting together my first full length pieces was he realized what's so great about theater is it becomes this medium where the whole point is to allow other people to dig their fingers into it. Mm. and and the playfulness of that like i went from being a writer who was at first i was like um way too um precious yeah no i i, I became precious <laughs> but oh. when i first when, when i first started when i first started i was so keen to be like a, a good boy or to like be a good collaborator and because that felt really important that i would you know when an actor would like question a line and i'd just be like oh that's fine we can lose it we can lose it rather than try and help them find the meaning of it. Oh, I see. Yes. Um, and, and so then eventually it would go on and be quite upset because I had lost things, which, you know, they were never going to know that that was important or they've got their eye on like the, what the character is doing rather than the overall arc of a thing. And then I got too precious <laughs> for a little bit in reaction because you watch it and you're like, you feel really stung by what you've seen. You're like, Oh Lord, like I can't let that happen again. Um, and then, um, yeah, after a run of going, actually this doesn't feel, I don't want to feel this uptight about things. Um, and I love, I really genuinely adore actors from like the bottom of my heart, like from the very basic thing of how do you remember all the lines, which still impresses me, even though I now understand it's the worst thing you can ever say to an actor. Um, Cause it's a bit like saying, I can't believe you wrote that many words. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it has, it has no quality, 
qualitative um, uh, commentary. But um, I, yeah, I adore them. I love writing for them, and I love the way they can find things in work that you didn't even dream possible to be there, and the way that across a run, you know, they deepen their relationships and their point. There's a beautiful point in writing for theatre where the actors know that character better than you. Yeah. Like four or five weeks into a run, then suddenly that's theirs. And that feels a a lovely way of letting a piece of work go. But it also feels like, um, again, it's that right back to that CompuServe forum sharing thing. It's the way in which that writing, which is a hugely solitary thing and a huge amount of research or just, you know, picking away a scene to get it right, just going... And now it's released into the world. And one day, hopefully, you know, a kid will pull that text down in a bookshop, should they still exist, and go, oh, this story really means something to me. I'd love to inhabit it myself. And that, yeah, there's a real delight in that. And so that's, I think that's how I probably came to love theatre and try and push myself to do better with it. Well, I think that's one of the magic things about theatre and the stage, isn't it? Is that it is different interpretations, different actors, different directors, yeah. even the same actor on different nights doing it different ways. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, you don't get that in any other medium. I mean, I suppose the closest to it is uh, watching a band, you know, a mm. band, a band yes. on tour. But, e- but even then, you're not, you generally, uh, you know, I've seen, I've, I'm a big music fan. I have seen many bands on tour. You don't generally yeah. get that same level of variation. Because for the most part, it's yeah. still the same people. Yes. Whereas you go and watch Richard III at the RSC, you know, one day, and then you go down uh, to somewhere in Hampshire and watch it there with a completely different cast, completely different director, same words, but everything about it will be different. Might even be set in a different time period if they're doing yeah. something wacky with it. You know, um, you just don't get that in any other medium. No, and it's and it's. I think what I've really properly come, so I started out, you know, when I started to make my transition to writing fuller pieces and still doing, you know, the odd scratch night, there's a lot of, you know, you're on the pub theater circuit and still to this day, my favorite version of Othello I've ever seen was in the back of a pub in Kennington. And, and, and it was because there was such, those actors found such clarity in the lines and it, you know, there was no set. It was basically a black box studio mm-hmm. But I was absolutely enthralled by it. Like, I thought it was stunning. And um, I love the fact that, you know, <laughs> more often than not, like, you're going to get some really terrible things. Um, but it is, in a sense, that's kind of the joy of theatre as well is, like, there's no better first date than a bad play <laughs> because at least you you know you'll have that in common to, like, go, wow, that was rubbish. And you're both on, like, hope, you know, if you both thought it was terrible, then you can both agree with that. Whereas, like, if it's a really good play as well, you know, there's nothing to do except to be reverential to it. Whereas if it's a bit naff, then you could be a bit naughty and a bit fun. And that, you know, that is the dynamic you want on something like that. Um, but I, I love, you know, and I think I don't miss theater in the pandemic, for example, because sometimes it can be super clubby and it can be, um, it can be a little bit sceney, but I do miss the energy of going, I don't know what this is going to be like, you know, and sometimes in my own plays, there'll be like that slight heart of going, there'll be one day where everything lines up and an actor just nails it. And you're like, 
this is the best thing in the world. I am a genius. <laughs> and then you'll see it another day when it's just slightly out of sync and like maybe they actually aren't quite vibing off each other in the way they were before. And then you're suddenly like, oh, this really drags. And you, and you never know. <laughs> like I, and, I, and I think when I was, again, when I was starting out, the, what I would tell myself would be, I'm going to write an actor-proof play or a director-proof. I'm going to write a play so undeniably good, even if they like mess it up, people will go, that was brilliant. And I think what I've really come to is that you can't, I don't think you can be a generous theatre writer and be someone who embraces what theatre is best at if that's the way you approach it. No, it is, as you say, it's a collaboration. It has to be a collaboration uh, because you're not the one up there on stage actually saying the words. <laughs> no, exactly. And again, that, I find that incredibly heroic and um, yeah, I, I, I adore it. So how is that? I mean, let, let's uh, let, let's just switch over for a moment then into, as you say, you do a fair amount of TV these days. Yeah. Yeah. Most people listening to this are probably going to know your name in association with Doctor Who uh, yeah. you know, in the last couple of years. But that is also a collaboration and not only in a, mm. in a, with a show like Doctor Who, you're not just collaborating with the director and the actors and stuff, but you're also collaborating with at least one other writer because that's one of the you know few British shows that has a showrunner. Yeah, yeah. And and you're collaborating with a history as well for the show. And it's, yeah. Um, yeah, it's really it's, – it's, so um, the, the way I made my pivot into television – um, was I did a one-off drama for BBC Three called Murdered by My Father, which um, uh, was very unusual in the way that it was made because it was sort of a bit more like a film, like I was the first person on it and then came the exec producer, oh, sorry, then came producer and then came a director. So I had a lot of latitude and a lot of freedom to um, make that story the thing that I think it, I felt like it really needed to be. And that was... Um, that was a one-off drama about uh, an, an honor killing and it was very difficult. And I, you know, I, I initially didn't really want to do it, but the latitude I got given to approach that subject and the way that I felt was really important to approach it, like really stayed with me. And so then when we came, when it came to Dr. Who, which um, I got hired on on the basis, like they'd read murdered by my father. I think it hadn't even been gone out yet. I think it had been shot. It hadn't gone out yet. And, you know, um, Chris had asked me, like, what's the, you can tell one story on Doctor Who, what would it be? And, you know, I had a few things I want to do, but I was like, if I get, if I get to tell one, <laughs> if I get to do just one story, I think I'd love to do a story about the partition of India um, for the reason that I think it is a show that uh, I'd love the idea of putting that story in front of a BBC One audience, um, a family audience, a mainstream audience. Mm -hmm. And I like the challenge of doing it through a show like Doctor Who, but also feeling like Doctor Who is exactly the sort of show that can contain that story and do it well, um, even though it can be difficult. But what what it meant was that I felt a real sense of um, ownership and responsibility to it myself, even before it goes up to you know Chris to do his passes on it or his consideration thinking. And um, you know, credit to him, he gave me like a lot of latitude to do that and. We, you know, we went through so many different variations of it. We had a very big version and then like a super small version. Then we kind of ended up where we did. And yeah, it was, it, it's hard because you, but I, but I think if, I think the thing I always say to people is like, you always want to be working with people that you like, like maybe sometimes the money won't be massive or uh, it won't be exactly what you're trying to do. But if you like the person that you're working with or you trust them, then 
that's the thing that makes that collaboration easier to take. And I felt like over the time that I'd been in that room with the other writers and with Chris, I was made it quite clear what I thought was really important about that script. And he was open to me like explaining that and telling him what, cause, cause it's, um, you know, he, he needs to equalize the voices across the series and he makes it, you know, he brings out the things in it that he wants. So he might make it more, um, a bit more genre. Right. Whereas like with that episode, I was like, my job here is to absolutely nail the dramatic beats of the, the that story of the week in terms of um, the realistic stuff. And I've this, and then make sure that the sci-fi element of it um, speaks thematically to what we're doing. But I, yeah. I knew early, I knew quite early on that it couldn't be the core of it because you have to respect that event as a, as a human moment. Yeah. And, and not a thing that you can um, solve, you know, the doctor, like, I, like one of my rules for that episode, <laughs> like I said to Chris, like the doctor can't save the day here because that makes, it doesn't make sense of a tragedy that still has reverberations to the world now. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it robs the, uh, the real facts of a recent event of, yes. you know, of, of their relevance. If the doctor solves it with a sonic screwdriver. Yes. Which is difficult because obviously, you know, in that show, the doctor's the doctor's sort of like your your life raft in a, in a chaotic universe, right? You, you want the doctor to be able to be the person who can bring justice and goodness to a world or a universe itself that can be quite evil or unfair. But there are just you know there are points that you can't do that, and a historical story, especially something like this, which doesn't get a lot of exploration on. British television, like you, mm. I, I feel, it felt important to hit it relatively cleanly, and again, yeah, to to, to make the sci-fi element and be talking more about the idea of what it means to have loss and to have remembrance and to go, you know, with partition, the rounding error of how many people died is like a million. Like they don't know, you don't know. There are so many people who just vanished into history, you know, mourned by the families, but sort of the, the statistics can't even um, can't count them, and so it felt right to try and go somewhere those those people are counted they mean something somewhere and um yeah it was but it was really hard to get right and i again i am slightly rambling but i I, it was really nice to be able to trust the people i was working with to understand the things that i felt were most important that story yeah no i i get that totally and for what it's worth i mean i think there's a reason that that episode is so fondly remembered by so many people and it was nominated for an award wasn't it uh yeah a hugo yeah yeah which you know that's that's pretty good (laughs) oh that no that was a you know that the 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 little kid in me who always wanted to write sci-fi that felt like a real homecoming (laughs) yeah like 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 genuinely like i know it'll sound like really ridiculous and quite tidy to say it but like that nomination meant more to me than like the bafta stuff for murder by my father because i was like i felt like with murder by my father i felt like i did a good job of it it was really important to me and always will be but it was also not a full articulation of who I am as a writer. Whereas with Demons of the Punjabs, the, the Doctor Who episode, like that was the first time I go, the things that I'm interested in the world are also in- married. This is that marrying with the things that I find really exciting and fun and, and the genre stuff. Mm. And this is the start of me being more confident in who I am, the way the stories I want to tell and the way I want to tell them. And so that felt, but to get that recognition for that felt really delightful. 
That's great. I wanted to ask about Murdered by My Father because it felt like something that could have been a play or could at least have started out in concept as a play. Is that the case? No, like I, I didn't even, I didn't pitch that. Although um, there was a sense of theatrical thinking in it in that um, I, got, uh, I got, yeah, they emailed my agent and I, yeah, I said I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to do an honor violent story. But then I went and talked to Aisha Raphael, who is the producer, and it was a BBC Factual Commission. And um, I, I think I didn't, it was like my first bit of telly and it was one of my first meetings. No, it wasn't when I, I had done lots of general meetings like everyone does, but um, I didn't realize it was a pitch, <laughs> basically, <laughs> uh, which probably helped thinking back. But like, I just said, like I'd read the documents it's done over me and I said, look, here's the thing about this is, I look at a story like this and I go, I get what happened. I get the young woman emotionally. I get the people around the person I don't get. I don't get the dad. I don't get the person who does that to their kid. Mm. And you don't need a TV drama to tell you that honor violence is bad, but what it can do is try and explore the psychology of someone like that. Um, for, you know, for an advocacy reason of going, well, if you make someone a monster, then you absolve them of um, responsibility for the things that they do. Whereas if you can look at, what is essentially the actions of, of a weak man and frame it that way, that could be really exciting. And, and the, the example I use is I'd just seen a, a version of an Arthur Miller play, A View from the Bridge. And um, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with it, but it, but at the, the heart of it is, again, a fundamentally weak man. And like it ends with him calling out to the street, uh, asking for his name back. He feels like he's had his reputation taken from him by this other person. Um, and, you know, they get into like this, this fight. And, um, and I was like, that's Red Hook, New York in the 1940s. But this is that story as well. So it's not a, it's not a thing about, oh, that's what those people over there do. Those like strange, terrible, awful people. It's like this, this is um, a thing about weak men. It is a thing about reputation. It is a thing about the way that uh, women's bodies fit into a system of honor that isn't just you know within honor killing it's also throughout history like you have shakespeare plays that do like much to do about nothing has that with it when it's plot line you know mm. so i was trying to marry i was saying let's treat this like an arthur miller play in the first instance in terms of the way we're treating the drama and then the specificity of it we can build into it but actually fundamentally we want to build it around the idea of this is a weak man who lets the reputation that he craves so desperately um, interrupt his love for his daughter with devastating consequences. I mean, that's a really tricky balance to strike as well, because what you're doing there is making, you know, somebody who has committed a terrible act, you're making them sympathetic. Well, I mean, I think that's the difference between empathy and sympathy, isn't it? It's trying to go, how, how do you make them understandable or at least understand see what they're doing through their point of view. And the point of doing that isn't necessarily to validate what they're doing. And I think the way you make sure that doesn't happen in a drama is like, I was very clear early on, there's got to be a point in this story where we completely lose track of his emotional trajectory. Like at the start, we'd be like, Oh, I get that guy. He's trying to do best for his daughter. Ah, he has these pressures of, if he doesn't fit into this thing and let her be part of this, then he doesn't get to uh, have work anymore. There's like an economic thing on him there. There's a pride thing. There's all sorts of things. So you understand the pressures that are sitting on him. And 
that doesn't have to be a place where you judge him yet. And you, and you also see that he has great love for his daughter, which is the truth in lots of those cases. And that's what makes the, uh, the complexity really difficult to grapple with and find the balance of. But then you get to a point where he's made, like you want to push the drama to a place where it's not a sort of, sort of exploitative thing where you're like, Oh God, like I'm waiting for the horror moment. What if you build it right, you get to a point where you're like, I love both these characters. I love this father. I love the daughter. And I don't want him to do that. Like, I, I don't want him to become the person who does that. But then when he does, you know that that's a choice he's made. That's a choice he's made of weakness. It's made out of floor. It's, it's, it's not a, I guess I get why he did it. Like it's, it right. becomes a thing of going, you've made the wrong decision. You've like very clearly made the wrong decision there. And we built it so that he would recognize that. And there's um, a, probably like the most theatrical part of the film is, uh, and it, it's something I, like, again, I tried put in early on is the moment after he's like fatally injured, killed his daughter to just sit with him in those 20, 30, 40 seconds afterwards and just sort of feel like the screaming inside of his head, essentially going, you've done something that you'll never be able to come back from and just feel about, like that sick feeling in your chest from having done that and us to understand that sitting with him as well. So, hope, you know, hopefully it is a hard thing, um, hard balance to strike. But I, I think, again, if you do it right, you can gear it so you create a true character, someone you can understand and has, again, the, you, the fundamentals of the emotion of what brings someone to that place. Mm. It, like that weakness, like that need for security, like that need for validation, which are universal. It's not just um, the specific group of people. Um, and so you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I get where that comes from. And then you lose them in terms of the action. But what hopefully it does do is it means, ah, I know how to disrupt that process in a person, or at least I feel like I'm better clued up into what I can do or say to someone to try and bring that from them. And you want, you know, a person watching that film who, you know, might one day end up down that route, go, this will haunt you forever. So like, yeah, keep up it. Well, the, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the sort of universal emotion aspect because I was going to say about that, as you say, those sort of 20, 30, 40 seconds after the act. Obviously, most people have not experienced that actual, you know, that precise no. emotion from performing that actual act. But I think most people can relate to that idea when you realize something has gone terribly wrong or you've yes. made a terrible mistake and you get that horrible sinking feeling in your stomach. You know, we've all felt that that is a universal feeling. So I think it's really interesting that that's how you kind of got people into, uh, as you say, the empathy with the character by accessing a universal feeling rather than the specific act. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, and Adil does an astonishing job on it and I, you know, we're really lucky to have him and it, you know, <laughs> the whole thing was very fast. Like I, I, like I got hired at the end of May and we we're shooting in October. So like, Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a very high, like for your first job in telly, it's like a real, <laughs> welcome a real, to the highway. Yeah. yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, but he was like, he was, he was astonishing to work with. And it was, it was, um, we got him on board before we finished the first draft actually. And, you know, we essentially had to like pitch to, to him and like his agent, like what we wanted to do and knowing that he was going to be the person doing it helped a lot in how, again, where you build the sympathy, where, you know, you let it go. And he has a remarkable ability to go from like this, this softness to this flintiness and like mm. a look and it, and it, 
yeah and it like you know a, a bit like i was saying like with actors on stage i love when you can just cut stuff and just let it sit with the actor's face so you know that 30 40 seconds you can write it as beautifully as you want on a on a page and it was very flowery i remember the script <laughs> but essentially it's all on his face do you know what i mean yeah. it's got to be him who who puts that who puts that through and um yeah and i think because he is you know the trick of it weirdly is like when they first cast him or when we talk about casting him i didn't see it. i thought it was going to be someone who was a bit looked a bit harder in their exterior but actually by having someone who does look a bit softer in the first instance and then does that act and that i think you're saying two things you're you're going you never know the type of you can't go oh you know my partner isn't that sort of guy because it can be any sort of guy like domestic violence doesn't yeah. have particular type of guy he'll necessarily do it but it also means that um you can be really disarmed by him quite early on you're like oh like you know he's a bit of an underdog and this is big guy in this world who's like putting and, you, and that that is the way of generating that empathy for him as a person but then to go i liked you and you completely effed it up you made the wrong choice and you betrayed your daughter not just in terms of um you know the responsibility as a parent but also that very profound love that you have for her and she had for you and i think that's the thing with violent acts and things is they can kind of wash over you but if you can imbue the act with that meaning of emotion, the way that you've rent, you, that the thing that you can feel an emotion is having, um, I don't, you could like violent acts by themselves again, like they're just, they, they're just like a bit of, um, it can be a bit of confetti essentially mm. as awful as that sounds. Cause you're just used to seeing them in like shoot in um, action movies and stuff, but to give the action weight, you have to go like, this is something really profound and meaningful that is being destroyed here. And you have done that. No, it's like the old anecdote is not anecdote, but you know, the old saying of you kill one man and you're a murderer, you kill a thousand men and yes, you're a hero. 100%. Well, you know, it's interesting. Like that came into play when we were doing demons of the Punjab. It was like, how do you take a national tragedy? How do you find a form for it? That is palpable for people. And it was a thing of going, Hey, look, there were lots of communities that were fully ripped apart when suddenly they were like, they felt in themselves or they were told, this is now the most important part of your identity. Mm-hmm. And to see that function through literally a family, again, is the most universal unit for doing something like that, felt like the best way of creating that microcosm for something, which is, you know, uh, has so many angles to it, which we're never going to be able to explain fully in like 45, 50 minutes, as well as um, imbuing it with that who-ness um so yeah if you find i think if you find the right gearing and that's you know that's a craft thing isn't it it's like how do you how do you find a setup in the first instance that is going to most effectively convey the things that you're trying to present from this story absolutely well and that leads to one of the things i wanted to ask you which was how do you how do you begin especially on the your with your plays on the stage stuff how do you start the process what is it you know what do you look for in an idea that to make you think, oh, okay, this one's worth pursuing. I think there are all sorts of pretentious things I could pretend that are true, <laughs> but like really bluntly, it'll, it'll be like, oh yeah, that's really annoying. <laughs> in some instances, like it's like a thought that can't, that doesn't quite leave your head. And I think every play I've written has come from a slightly different place. So like my very first play was a play called uh, True Brits, which was me trying to resolve the sort of euphoria around the Olympics in London with the way that 7-7 changed my life in the way that it 
I, as a kid, was very much like, oh, this is my country. Like, my grandparents are paranoid when they say, like, you can't trust anyone, like, apart from your own people or stuff like that. Like, that's them, like, being overprotective. And then after 7-7, I realized how contingent my place in this country was. Like, I, I felt that, you know, I got stopped and searched a lot. I, people would move seats from you, and I suddenly understood what it meant to be to be brown in in, in britain and, you know i grew up in the home borough of the bnp so like oh, i was wow. called some pretty bad things when i was a kid anyway and like you know um my dad put me in kickboxing lessons when i was a kid and I, I only realized later that that was in response to Stephen lawrence murder that happened down the road um so it, it was a thing about asking myself that question of what is what do i think the truth of this country is is it that you know euphoric feel i you know going around london which is my home city seeing people smiling being very happy about that and the lie that public events can create, but that necessary lie that creates national narratives, or is it the that nice young lady or old lady or or like old man or whoever on the bus is going to move away from you, and that's just might always happen, and you can't you can't you can't ever know. Um, so that you know that was trying to resolve a personal thing. I think a lot of people's first plays or early plays are about something probably the most fundamentally autobiographical or. Um, yeah uh yeah something like that and then my second play was about um a woman about to throw herself off the dartford crossing and getting stopped by a guy who runs a toll booth there and that was something about like i, I went to school in a place called dartford and that was a place that you know it, it's a it's a as a town it's a real bellwether for where the country has been so you know it started off as um solidly labor it was the first place maggie thatcher stood and they rejected her roundly and now it's you know, a lot of industry went away from it. A massive shopping center opened up outside of town. Now it's properly small C conservative. And, you know, their MP is a guy who's a lawyer who went to the local grammar like I did. And I saw that real shift, like even like the small window that I, I was there for from a place that had a sense of pride and understanding of itself to a place of going, I don't know where people find work and dignity and a stable future in a place that doesn't offer those things. So it was like a kind of, but it was like a, you know, attempt of doing a, a dark comedy version of that. Cause that's felt like the best way to try and like sugar the pill. Mm. Um, but that was, you know, complete. The first play was a one man player. This was a two hander and it was lots of long conversations into the night. Um, and then the third play I did, well, I wrote lots of different plays. Like one was, <laughs> you know, I talk about those. Um, they were, they were nuts and one day they might come back. But like the next one I did was about my family. It was about trying to, I looked at my grandparents, their generation was dying. And I was wondering if they felt like everything they did to come here was worth it. And how do I tell the story of them going to India, to Kenya, to here and living, you know, doing all of those grand things so that the kids might become accountants. The disparity between the, the grand adventure of their lives, which I looked at and go, wow, that's so astonishing but with the mundanity of the things that they were really seeking like security and you know a, a good future for the kids not that that's super mundane but like it's it's not a it's it's not a it's not a done thing done for the romance of it but i but i also felt like there was a lot of love in my family and like most of my family were arranged marriages but they were also some of the most supportive and loving things and seen so i wanted to find a way of how do i give a truth to that love and feeling and also just write down their stories. And, you know, my grandfather died recently, um, but he got to see that play. 
he got to see that play. Oh, he did with yeah. his yeah, like he got to see that play, which the characters are named for him and his like dead wife. Like she, like my grandmother died when I was at uni, and I felt like doing that play where that place where that play came from resolved itself that night that that man got to see that. Mm. And I felt like I have, um, you know, I was talking earlier on about the way you validate people through stories. Like the, like, yeah, like those kids at school going, I'm going to put you in a story yeah. and how that feels really important with them. I was like, I'm going to write this play. Cause I feel like that story needs to be in the ether of what, uh, of the culture. Like it needs to sit cause they, they, they're at the heart. They've been at the heart of this country for 50, 60 years in lots of ways. Like my grandfather helped that side helped rebuild Thamesmead after the war. But um, the understanding of who they, they were was sort of fading. And that, so that was more of a, I just want this to exist thing. And then, um, sorry, I really wasn't rambling, but like um, my, my, my fourth, most recent one was about language and about, that was a um, sort of satire about language. It was about a, a woman who's trying to get promotion at work and she has this meeting that's sort of going to be the thing that does it. And she tells a joke that has a, a word in it that someone really objects to. and. Um, you see the fallout of the use of that word and like how people react to it. And you never find out what that word is um, as an audience. And it's sort of the play is trying to trip you up constantly about whether you know mm. who anyone is actually representing, but it is, you know, the dynamic of um, a social media outrage, but also about the way that language moves so fast. It can be really hard to, to grasp what is good or not, or what is the, the correct uh, moral position to have and how you can create a society um, that has a shared ethos and understanding of itself when even the the language is, is a quicksand. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, but trying to do that in a fun way, like in a way that, cause what I love that was, I mean, you know, and even, you know, that was for a touring theater company and that changes the way I think you create and approach your project. So I was like, I can make this for like a London audience. Right. And maybe there'll be some things there that have some very, you know, knowing in jokes, how do I make this a thing that's really exciting when it's up in the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere? And, um, you know, you're asking a lot for people to come there and pay that money to go see that play. How do you go? This is something I really care about. And I think is really important to the country, but you're going to have a good time watching it. Well, and is also relevant no matter where you take it, as you say, because, you know, we are a country like any other where with different regional values. Yes, exactly. Exactly that. And I wanted to be humble before that fact. Um, and I think the way I was trying to do that was by going, I, I get, to, I'm going to try and represent everything in it, but also I'll try and make this worth your time and engagement um, with it. I won't assume that you are someone who comes to the theater. I won't assume that you're someone who, uh, gets, uh, particular theatrical modes. You know, I want it to be like my 14 year old self could come and see it and not knowing anything about theater and it not be that end game experience. I want it to be like super accessible while talking about the things I really get about. Um, so yeah, like that's a long way of saying it all comes from different places. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it sounds like they mostly come from things that you, from concepts and things that you want to talk about rather than sort of entering through a character. Um, yeah. I mean, it can do like, so, with, you know, with, with that play about my grandparents, I guess that did start from a place of character that was about going, how do I make this person seem like the mighty person they are to me, to an audience who doesn't know them. Right. Um, right. But it can, yeah, but it can, but it can be. I mean, you know, I'm writing two plays at the moment. One is the sci-fi version of the Cherry Orchard, and that comes from, oh, I love that play, and I love, I think there's a way in which it suits this setting, and I think it's really exciting. So that that has an excitement about the this almost a playful silliness of an idea. But like the other play I'm doing is about um, 
you know, George Lucas and the creation of Star Wars. As you do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's asking to get sued, but like the thing that, you know, the really profound character thing there for me was, you know, I was, you know, I grew up watching Star Wars. So I had a subscription to a US magazine before they even had one here in the, like the doldrum years before they even did the special editions. And so, you know, I was really into it, but, um, I think the first time I heard that George Lucas was meant to direct Apocalypse Now, it blew like the back of my head off completely. Cause I was like, wait a minute, what? Like, why, why was the Star Wars guy <laughs> anywhere near <laughs> that movie? And I didn't, I didn't understand it at all. Like, and, and, you know, and then that understanding that I got that George Lucas was part of that 1970s filmmaking crew, like that movement. Yeah. Yeah. And he made a very specific decision to go, this is, what the world needs right now, it's not a lot of moral grayness. It's actually a moral clarity. And how do I create a story that contains that and gives that to the world? And I love the idea that that's the radical act in a group of very artsy people making brilliant films, which I love, but are very much contingent on the moral grayness of the world going, ah, the thing that actually want to create and that is important to make and what the world needs is this. This is what the thing needs from me. And, you know, that's a question I have, um, I'm asking myself all the time, but um, yeah, I, I just found that like a really fascinating decision. And I like that. It's um, it's not a story of someone going, I'm going to stay true to my artistic vision, no matter what it's like going actually a certain amount of selling out. <laughs> it's quite useful. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, the complexities of that, like the way that that is, um, is a, like, there's a quote for, there's so many things um, from him that I find interesting, but one of them is uh, I'm slightly paraphrasing, but he was like, in America, you know, money is the thing that matters and you need money to be free. And so he was always going, I'm going to make these big um, science films and they're going to do this thing morally and that I think are interesting. But also I will then go back and make my artsy experimental films once I've made my money. Once I've made my money, I'll go and make my artsy films. And of course, you know, he, he never does. No. Um, he never directs a film again that isn't, well, he doesn't direct a film again after that first Star Wars film. And then the only thing he comes back for is more Star Wars. And I... You know, and then there are other things there in terms of character. Like I find Marsha Lucas very fascinating and she's been written out of that story yeah. very much by, by George's hand. And so I want to centralize her in that story. Um, and, you know, and you have your fun with other characters like young Spielberg in Cowboy Boots being like a TV director no one thinks is any good and <laughs> and, and Coppola being like an outrageous figure that he was. So that, that play is very much built around these personalities who I find fascinating. Yeah, that uh, while, is all about character, isn't it? Yeah, and, but whilst also still trying to drive through that question of, you know, who do we make art for and why and, like, what is the most effective way of of uh, communicate, communicating the things that you care about and think matter in the world? You mentioned earlier, when you were talking about the plays that you've put on, you, you kind of alluded to having written a bunch that didn't, that went nowhere, that, that yeah. haven't, haven't <laughs> been made, you know, or have been sort of shelved. Are you, I mean, do you... Are you comfortable talking about that? Because that's a really fascinating idea to me that you could spend all that time writing a play and then yeah. at what stage do you realise, oh, this isn't going anywhere? Well, I mean, like, I, I would start by saying I'm that person who would be horrified at that when I was starting out because I, I find writing really hard. I'm not a very prolific person. Um, and so the idea of, like, shelving things, which, uh, like, every interview like this, like, which I gobbled up when I was younger, was like, you wrote how many things and how many of them didn't go on? Like, what are you talking about? Like, it sounds like a nightmare. And um, for me, it was more of a thing of um, one of them I wrote 
because I it was just after I'd written Murder by My Father and I wanted to write something really fun and I needed to sort of um, find a way of um, kind of like depressurizing myself from it. So that was a, it was a, a dark comedy um, set on a Hindu in India and that was it was really silly. It was like a group of five girls and they end up like murdering someone and trying to cover it up and um, they get away with it because the truth of it is they're not super Indian, they're rich Westerners at the heart of it and um so it was you know a commentary about what it meant to be both attached to a culture somewhere else but also fundamentally be part of a completely different world in terms of status and money and what that can do but doing it through a like a really silly and playful way and i wrote that <laughs> i wrote that for the bush actually that was my um that was the commission that's what i used my commission money for and then the maddening Eunice, who was the artist director is like i feel like like this is fine and this is great but uh, i feel like you could write something like bigger than that like push yourself to reach for the profound thing which is how i ended up writing the thing about my grandparents and, right um which again was a riskier prospect in lots of ways because it was like part of the formal thing with that was to go don't make it a neat 90 minute thing with two hand it was like three hours long <laughs> it was like a real at two intervals it was a real <laughs> ask for an audience but it was the thing it looks like going how do i go actually there's a i've to take that confidence as a writer and go yeah actually their story is that grand and loads of other stories get that kind of leeway for things that aren't anywhere near this big or monumental for what it means for, you know, um, for what this country is and has become. So I was glad that I got pushed for that, but I have real affection for that play, but it was, you know, it was a great thing to write because it was like pushing myself as a comic writer in a way that, you know, murder my father certainly didn't for good reason. Yeah. And then the second thing was, um, it was a it was a radicalization rom com, uh, which 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 again was me. I realize now me trying to go. How do I talk about the things that I think are important through ways that I would enjoy? How do I write that play that guys I play football with will come and see, but still talk about the things I want to talk about? And like the setup of that was, um, you know, based on the true thing, which is um, it was a dating coach teaching these two guys how to be like less rubbish men so that they can be appealing to these young women who are running off abroad um, to join like terrible terrorist organizations. And so this woman who's funded by a corrupt government grant <laughs> is trying to basically be a dating coach for these guys. And this one guy, these two brothers, one brother meets this young woman in a club and she turns out to be someone who is like thinking of going abroad and they share that secret. But it turns out she's been hired by a British far right group to uh, seduce young men who they think are going to go abroad and join a terrible terrorist organization. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so they both play up to that image of, of who they're pretending to be. And then they both realize that they're like, that, that they're, that it's like that they're making it up and um, neither of them are actually that person. But they realize if they play along with it, they can both get money from these people who who have that idea of them. And so it's them going through the motions of pretending to be this uh, couple who are going to possibly go and join an, a, a terrible organization, do something awful, while reporting back the success to the people who want them to be, um, who, who want them to be like these terrible, awful people mm -hmm. who are going to do that. Um, so they fall in love through pretending. So, you know, they go to like, they go on a date to laser quest and they like film a video pretending it's like, um, it has like a jihadi element, but actually it's just them having fun at laser quest. And, uh, their br her, his brother ends up, he tries to make a pass at someone. It's really terrible. He gets uh, a stiletto heel through his arm 
ends up in hospital and basically has a Kafkaesque um, prevent style thing from the doctor. Because at that point, like the prevent was being pushed into like mm. not just schools, but also people, and it and it became a really silly, absurd thing with him. But the heart of that play was about going: if you are fundamentally under suspicion all the time, then you don't get the full emotional range of you as a person to to give out into the world. It's hard to trust the world. It's hard to trust yourself. It's hard to be a loving individual, and so that suspicion creates a pressure that. Um, ironically destroys the thing that people would want, which is like their cohesiveness and community. And, you know, beyond that going, you just never know, like having a population group in a country is a risk. Like I'm doing air quotes because you just never know how that will work out. And in the same way that you never know when you start a relationship with someone where that will go. But if you both come at it with a certain amount of good faith and affection and attempt for that to be something you both care about, then, um, you know, some profound things can happen. And it was trying to sit those analogies on top of each other. And it was really fun to write. And like the end, like I was basically trying to write a rom-com where, because I love rom-coms and it was about going, what do all these beats look like if you're a brown person with suspicion at these times? Mm. So like the final beat is him running to the airport to stop her um, going away. But he's also a a young brown man running through security uh without a ticket so the ending of the play is like he finds her at the terminal and like the police are like i'm like about to jump him and like he's like he's got 10 seconds to explain to her how much he really loves her and doesn't want her to go and then like at the end he's like puts his hands up in surrender which is him surrendering to police but also surrendering to love and like she does the same gesture so it's like really silly and really playful but um yeah i really enjoyed writing it and it was really fun but it was also like like, I think you know we were talking earlier about finding the balance with things. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I was like, I don't think the balance <laughs> is like quite there. Um, I, I've got to say, it sounds like a lot of fun. But I could see it as a one-off on BBC Three or something. Yeah, I think it's really. I think maybe the environment for it now is slightly a bit better, and I I would feel more confident about putting it into the world. But um, and I was really pleased with that. But it was that thing of like both of those plays. I stopped at the second draft. And um, I keep telling myself I'll go back and revisit them. But um, I think for both of them, the moment has slightly passed. That's hard to do, though, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And, and, it, and you know, I'm super glad that I wrote them. Because, again, it, it is a confidence trick for yourself as a writer. I'm sure you will have experienced it yourself, that thing of going, I don't know if I can. I think I'd really like to do that, but I don't know if I can. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and actually, like, writing so that, you know, that radicalization rom-com was called uh, Known Unknowns. Um, and, I, and I really love it. And, like, you know, that is making that Rumsfeld um thing that became a big deal like going and the way again with with love like you know that you don't know where this will go and but it is also you know a phrase used on the war of terror um so yeah i i was delighted by that play and i i like i hear myself talk about it now it's like oh yeah i really like it and i'm so glad i did it but i also know i don't know necessarily if that needs to exist in the world but i'm really glad for my sake that i did it yeah i've talked many times with many other people on this show about the how important it is as a writer to do things that you don't know you can do. Yeah. To try things and have a certain amount of fear going like, well, I'm going to try this. I'm not sure if I can pull it off, but I'll give it my best shot. Oh, it's so hard. And, it, and it's scary. You know, I think when you're starting out, it's easy to be brave. But once you're like, once you... Oh, it's much harder it, the more experienced you are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because one, you know, you've got a reputation at stake eventually. Um you've got is you've made it your livelihood then it's potentially like the the money for, for you and your family you know um so it becomes hard especially like i said i'm not very prolific so it's a real cost 
both in time and potentially other work to be doing it. So it becomes harder to justify doing it. Um, but it, you know, it's the way you stop yourself being stagnant as an artist. It's a good way of checking in with yourself as an artist, I think as well mm. to go like, Oh, what, what am I actually interested in both in terms of topic, but also the in form and the way I want to create things like, and I, I think it is useful to know that about yourself. Absolutely. I mean, I just, I look back literally at something I wrote just a couple of years ago and I read it and I'm like, this is like a different person wrote this. I would yes, not, exactly. you know, I would not write this in this way now. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what I mean. Like those, again, those plays are a document of who I am. And I even like, I read my first play and it feels a bit like having a conversation with like a younger brother. Like I kind of want to put my arm around that writer <laughs> and go, man, like this is very heartfelt slightly bad <laughs> but like very hard so like you knew why you, you knew why you were writing it and i respect that wholly and i'm um, you know I'm, I'm proud of what you've done like where you've come but um i would yeah i would never produce that piece of work now and you just you just want to reassure your younger self look it's it's okay you'll get over it it'll get better <laughs> yes exactly it's like those three stars won't feel too damning <laughs> you get sometimes you'll take that gratefully Oh, all right. Well, let's let's start to wind this up now. What do you think you're pretty good at? Ooh, um, I think I'm good at. I can. I think I can see the angle on things. I think I'm good at going. How do I take that and make it the thing that I think is interesting to an audience? Mm. Um, which can sometimes let me because I again when I started out, I would go into every meeting and I would find the angle on a thing that someone wanted to do. And I was like, I can do all of these things. And my agent very quickly reminded me, was like, no, you can't because uh, one, you're not fast enough. And two, you don't have the time. <laughs> um, but, but, but I, I, I really enjoy. And I, I think I, it is one of my strengths is that I can find the conception of something. And I find that a really pleasing part of it, you know, like doing that with my father, doing that with Dr. Who, um, doing the stuff that I'm doing now. Um, that's yeah, it's, but it's, it's, I think it's hard thing to realize yourself. Like, you know, when I was starting out, I'd be like, yeah, I'm really good at dialogue. I really like dialogue. Everyone, everyone likes being good at dialogue. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that's like, that's like the fun thing to go. And now I'm like, I'm fine at dialogue. You know, I'm not like uh, spectacular at it, but like, yeah, I, I, I think I'm good at um, take like, like, you know, like with Cherry Orchard looking at it going, actually there is an angle there that I think is really interesting and can be really good. And I think that, you know, I would say it, but fingers crossed, like, I think that does really work. Um, mm. So yeah. All right. Well, then conversely, what do you wish you were better at? I wish I was better at being a more consistent writer. I think I can get pulled in lots of different directions. And this is partly, you know, this is the the dark side of the thing that I think I'm good at. It's going, oh, uh, actually, there's a different way of doing this. I think I can find this other way of doing it that's also just as good. And um, And I want to sometimes just go, hey, stick with the thing that you're doing and see it through to the end. And then come back and revisit it and like find new ideas in it or find those particular angles. Um, I wish I had more patience with things because um, I, I think that's hard. I think I had it again when I was starting out, but now just, you know, when you've got a billion things on your plate, you're like, oh, I've just got to, I've got to get that draft done, get that draft done, get that draft done. Um, and, and that can lead you to be a bit as harsened with some things. And I, and I wish, and I, you know, this is slightly a bit of a cheat answer because it's something I am making myself do now. It's just going, actually, take the time, sit. When you say you can, you can rewrite that play in a week, but don't. Like, right. Like, drag, you know, say it's going to take you three and sit with it, fully invest in it. Don't do things for the sake of efficiency. Um, like, really 
have the patience to go to a horrible place where you go, I don't know what that is. <laughs> and, and then find it and then push on and, and make it the best thing you can rather than sort of dart something out to look like a hero for efficiency sake. Um, I think that's a good point, actually, because there, we do often put pressure on ourselves to work quickly or to turn things around quickly when yeah. it, when actually it's not that important to the other people. You know, no. it feels like it is, but if we turn oh. around, as you say, if you say, actually, this is going to take me three weeks, most people go, okay. It's as if we're expecting them to go, three weeks? Is that outrageous? Yeah. How dare you? When actually they just go, okay, fine. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think one of the, you know, one of the funniest things, uh, the most important things to realize is no one really cares that much about what you're doing. <laughs> Nobody like, cares as much as I, you do. <laughs> yeah. Like no one is actually watching over your, like, you know, if you're in the run up to production, then yes, obviously. And like, there are things that I've, you know, I've had to come off of just because my mind hasn't quite been there or, you know, um, I've been dealing with other things, but most like, I, you know, I, <laughs> I sort of like killed myself over a weekend to get something in on a Monday morning and then I didn't get a reply from them to, and I pushed them again on Wednesday, and they're like, "Oh, sorry, yeah, we're away. We'll uh, read it in a week or so." Oh. I was like, "What? <laughs> like, like, I weren't you all just waiting at the edge of your email inbox, oh, like, for me to file this?" And obviously, they're not. And it's a great thing that they're not, right? Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but I, but but I, but I think there is a thing, especially if you feel like you you're not feeling very confident in your art and the the thing you're creating itself. There is a real push in yourself to go. I'm going to get my validity through being a good professional which obviously has its strengths and is really important, but I think it can be detriment. Like there's something I just completely missed the deadline of complete. And I felt really bad about it, but actually they didn't really care. And I found a much, much better idea for it uh, a week after I, it was due in. And that made it a great piece of work in the end. Oh, cool. So I think that was a real lesson to me of going, yeah, you can do it in that time. But what if as standard practice, you tell yourself, actually i'm going to spend this much time and give yeah. it this much time and then some of that might just be like dead space which is fine but to not go not pressure yourself so fully um yeah so i'm getting better at that hopefully good <laughs> um what's the last book you read where the writing really impressed you and why Ooh, that's a great question uh well sorry, i was thinking about it it's not super recently but i am thinking about it today if that's okay which is um I was thinking about Station Eleven again. So it was like, um, I think it, it won the Arthur C. Clarke Award a few years ago. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a book about um, theatre in a post-apocalyptic land. And the post-apocalyptic land came about through a virus that spread across the world. Ah. Um, and hilarious, they're making a TV series of it, uh, which was halted because of this pandemic, uh, which is which is delightful. That's in several so many levels ways. of irony right there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But the, the thing I loved, um, it's one of those things where the concept can, is, um, you know, it, it's not super novel. It's relatively familiar, but the line by line writing was gorgeous. The way that the writer finds both the past and the future in a line. Like she, she, that sort of the time travel happens in a, in a way that, that is emotionally true for all of us. And it, it, yeah, it made me have one of those like 3am, like really slightly wanky thoughts, which it was like, Oh yeah. To be a person is to emotionally travel in time all the time. Like you can be talking to someone and you'll be thinking of something that happened a few years ago or be dreaming of something that you might be doing in a few years. And 
it's a book that really captures that in certain places. And I, uh, I adore that, especially because the narrative is split between the future and the past. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it is people doing Shakespeare in a post-apocalyptic future. So it is sort of my wheelhouse. Um, and they do talk about Star Trek in it a lot, um, which, I, which I really, you know, I've, so, so, you know, I am the audience for it, but it, I think it was just, it's very compelling in the way it presents high art and low art again i'm doing that in air quotes and how meaningful those things are and and when i when i talk about things narratives that have blown my mind and completely reframed the way i think about things i'm not talking about a shakespeare play more often i'm probably talking about um you know the finale of next next generation and like all good things and how <laughs> as a 12 year old i was like this is the most profound thing i've ever seen in my life you know it, it felt it felt like impossibly astonishing to me and i love that the book it it has shakespeare it has the bible and it has comic books and it basically places all of them as important for a society that wants to function and have a conversation with itself and uh, allow lots of different people to be part of it and i just yeah i just find the line writing it um gorgeous and i my friend reminded me of it because he just said someone who i would never I think this is why I really I've been thinking about it. Someone who I'd never thought would like that book or be interested in that book, telling me, "Oh, has anyone heard about this book? I'm reading it now, and it's really brilliant." I was like, "Yes, I wrote a whole article about it. (laughs) It's really joyful, and it's made me want to just go back and go. Actually, I want to luxuriate in that book because, um, like, a bit like we were saying before about efficiency. I don't reread a lot of things. I don't rewatch a lot of things because I'm like, there's always more to read. There's always more to watch. Yeah, but actually." The idea of going back to something that I thought was beautiful and um, rediscovering that again, I'm, I'm excited about. Fantastic. All right, Vinay, where can people find you online? Uh, I am on Twitter at Vinay Patel, very boringly. And uh, I have an Instagram account, but that's private. It's just mostly cat pictures anyway. Um, but yeah, on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Vinay, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter, and that is also where you'll find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe, and I'll see you next time.